You're listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. Awesome. Well, again, my name is Stan. Welcome this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and take them out. We're going to be in the book of Jonah for the next four weeks. And so so what we do here, we teach through books of the Bible. And uh, and so Jonah is where we're going to be. And so Old Testament, uh, you can be uh, heading there. And I'm excited because you get to take books like Jonah um, that you might have learned in Sunday school and you have like the little felt board and, and you think you understand it. And I remember just even this week studying it with our connection group and all of a sudden you're like, I don't remember that part. Uh, there's going to be a lot of that in the book of Jonah. Uh, and so can't wait to study it. Uh, just if you're reading, doing our Bible read through, uh, I just, we're about to the book of Jonah in our Bible read through. For those that are doing this, the first, after the first 10 books, you got a t-shirt, just know this. I was looking at this this week. Uh, for those that are missing today, they're, they're going to kind of be out on this little secret. I was looking at this. I'm like, I am so far behind. And then I realized we put the wrong date at the top. It's actually June 1st that you're supposed to finish this chunk by, not May 1st. Yeah. So those people not here today, they're like reading the scramble to keep up. Don't do that, okay? Just cross it out and put June 1st, okay? Feel better, right? I just bought you back some time. So June 1st on that Bible read-through for this section. So it's fun to have so many people in God's Word together. So Jonah, if I had to just kind of simplify the book, it would be a story of a subversive prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. That's simply put, is a prophet who is subversive, tries to get away from God, and he hates God for loving his enemies. That's the brief overview. You understand where we're at in Scripture, just the historical kind of context. God had made a huge nation of people from Abraham and gave them this promised land and said, man, if you just worship me, you just follow me, you'll be blessed, and this is your place to have. And then Moses leads them out of Egypt, and they settle in this region, in homes they didn't build, vineyards they didn't plant, and it was just this amazing place. But instead of influencing the nations that would pass through there on their trades route, trade routes, they get influenced. They start worshiping false gods, and God gives them over and says, fine, if that's what you're going to do, let those gods protect you and lead you. And they get taken over, and they're now in the spot where they had peace and had this land, and now there's these kingdoms that are coming against them and they're being enslaved. And so these prophets were sent by God to speak his words to try and turn people's hearts back to him. And so typically when we read a, a minor prophet, when you look at some of the other ones, their focus on the books there are on the words of the prophet. But Jonah, while he's a minor prophet, a little bit different. Instead of this book focusing on the words of the prophet, it focuses on the story of the prophet, if that makes sense. And so we're going to look at the story and see what we can deduct from Jonah and the, the supporting cast in this thing. Um, and so before the story even begins, a little bit of suspicion could be raised with Jonah. He's mentioned elsewhere in scripture, 2 Kings, and he is prophesying to a really evil king and saying, hey, God is for you in 2 Kings. Meanwhile, another prophet, Amos, comes with a different word. It's like, no, God's not for you. You're evil. And so before we even dive into the book of Jonah, we're a little bit suspicious of this prophet. And so let's look at Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. 
Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. Okay, so just time out. Nineveh is where he's being called to go. Where he's at, kind of from his hometown, it would have been 500 miles on foot, kind of through some rugged terrain, but 500 miles on foot, kind of due east. This would have been located in modern-day Iraq. Okay, you get the kind of region where we're talking. And Nineveh would have been the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. These guys were just bent on conquering the world. And part of that was coming against Israel, and they would have been fighting against God's people. You see these wars that are taking place. And so the Assyrians were a pretty aggressive, kind of war-hungry group of people. And here is Nineveh, their capital city. In fact, historians would say of this city, oftentimes when they would go out, the Assyrians, and would conquer a group of people, they would take their kings and their leaders, they would this is just what would happen. They would cut off their heads and they would mount them on the wall, the city wall, like the gates as you're coming in, as trophies of war. In fact, it was not uncommon for them to take the rest of the body parts and, and chop them up and just send them around as like kind of prizes saying, look at how dominant we are conquering people. At one point, they filleted one of their own generals alive. That is, they cut off his skin while he was still alive and then bled him out like a lamb. Evil people. And it said, one, one writer said, there seemed to be no act of cruelty which these conquerors had not employed. You're talking about a very wicked, evil people in kind of this modern day Middle East. And so I know there's some beef with like people from Columbia and we think like, those Jayhawks over in Lawrence, Kansas, right? Okay, they're not cutting people up and sending body parts, you know, out of Lawrence, Kansas, right? This is a whole new level, but you get a little bit of like the, the test, you know, when you're like, oh, Jayhawks, okay. Amplify that a lot. This is, this is much worse. Perhaps a better um, would be the, the kind of the tension that would exist between Christians and ISIS. Like this Islamic state, the founder of ISIS declared the group's intentions when he says, our intention is to march all the way to Rome. And along the way, we promise to break the crosses of the Christians and to trade and sell their women. True to that, ISIS, just a few years ago, bust into this uh, Mosul, Iraq, and 60 to 100,000 Christians that lived in that place were displaced, killed, or enslaved. That's what ISIS is doing in this region. And I don't think it's coincidental, but this region in which that happens is known as the Nineveh Plain because it's in the same geographic location that we're going to read about the Ninevites in our scripture. Not much has changed in terms of the brutality of this group of people in that region. And so can you imagine what it had been like, we see right away, where God calls Jonah and says, hey, I want you to go tell that group of people about me. Now all of a sudden you're starting to put it together. Okay, that, like, God's done this once before. Can you imagine you go home, you're like just driving home, and you're like praying, like, oh, God, what would you have for me today? And 
And it, it's, it's not like, hey, be nice to that person or maybe give a little bit of money to the person begging. He's like, oh, I want you to go over to Iraq and minister to ISIS people. Like, okay. Like, again, very real. If you're a Christian, kill, run you out of town, or enslave you. That would be the response. These are sworn enemies. These are evil people. And God is asking Jonah to go there clearly in verse 1 and 2. Fear would have been a normal response, but ironically enough, like I set all that up to say, actually, (laughs) spoiler alert, that's not why Jonah doesn't want to go. There would have been, you would have been right to be fearful. And we're going to learn, and you can come back and we'll tell you, or you can just go ahead and read this this afternoon and read the rest of the story. Plainly in there, Jonah doesn't want to go, not because of fear, but something else altogether. And so, what is Jonah's response to God's clear call? Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord, period. Okay? Now I want you to understand what happened. We're talking Nineveh, 500 miles walk by land. That's where God calls him to go. He gets on a boat to head to Tarshish. We have a map, I think, for the slide. Okay, (laughs) you see where Joppa's at, kind of near the sea there? Nineveh, you just kind of head up northeast, you're there. Tarshish, 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. Guys, it wasn't that long ago they thought the world was flat, okay? And then it just dropped off after that. This would have been the furthest known west point before you just get out into the ocean. And so for all they know, the world is flat after Tarshish. This is the farthest like conceivable spot that anybody in the ancient world could have run to. <laughs> He's not just trying to get like a little bit away. You, do, you, do you even see like the one is east, one is like west. He's trying to put 3,000 miles Again, in an ancient culture, like between him and where he's like supposed, where God is calling him. And so not just a little bit of fleeing. I mean, he is fleeing and he's going to charter this across the Mediterranean Sea, like via boat. And so here's, before we go too much further, I just kind of want to time out a little bit as you like, you think about this, is I've seen people use Jonah as a license to abuse the sovereignty of God. I think he's familiar with the story of how this is going to go, and God ultimately gets him there. But I've seen people say, like, I'm going to do what I want, and God, in his sovereignty, you're telling me he's all-powerful, he's so strong. God, in his sovereignty, if he wants me in Nineveh, he can get me in Nineveh. While true... (laughs) Do you understand that that is anything less than submissive? Like Jonah, if you're here, I know he's a prophet of the Lord. He's not a shining example to follow. Like don't, like that's not the right response. Like God clearly calls him and so he doesn't actively lean in. He doesn't say, God, I'll, I'll do what you want. I trust you. That's not lordship. He flees. And so this isn't an excuse because God can do that. It's not an excuse to abuse the sovereignty of God. 
Moreover, God is not obligated to intervene when someone is running in the opposite direction. Does that make sense? God in his sovereignty can be like, okay, you want to run? Here's some smooth waters all the way to Tarshish. I'll find somebody else. I mean, God is not obligated to intervene. And I think there's another lie, like, is, is God impresses things on our hearts. And some of those things you're like, I don't want to do that. And so this lie comes about, like, God won't ask people to do something they don't want to do. <laughs> is that what... That, does Jonah want to go to Nineveh? No, he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Did God clearly ask him to do it? Yeah, God asked people to do things they don't want to do. Lord willing, we can change our heart and align our desires with God's desire, but it's a lie to think, well, I feel that pressed upon me, but I just, I don't want to do it. It can't be from the Lord because I just don't want to do it. Man, God may very well call us to things that we don't want to do, which is true here. And so Jonah is fleeing. He's in this boat in verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break apart. Again, it's this reality that God could have allowed Jonah to sail to Tarshish on the smooth waters of disobedience. But instead, God gives him the tumultuous waves, which represent grace. Could have been smooth water, but God, in his grace, sends a storm. God is responsible for the storm. And here's, if you want to just take your notes, both God and Satan have been known to use storms in our lives. That makes sense? I think sometimes we, we see this rough water, and it's like, oh, Satan's trying. No, this is, God is using a storm, and it's a sign of grace. Satan can also use storms to throw us off course, and it is representative of evil. The storms, if you identify a storm, that neither tells you if it's God nor Satan, and so we got to pray, who's behind it? I say that just because people think, I wonder if Jonah kind of saw this a little bit different, like things just kind of lining up, like, oh, what do you know? Up until this point, he's like, what do you know? There's a boat going to Tarshish. Man, God must be in this. And Oh, I got the exact change. This works out great. Like, just because things align, things are going well, doesn't mean God's in it. Just because things are going rough doesn't mean God's in it. He's been known to use things. We do worship a crucified Savior. And so they just want to dispel the lie. And so what should be the response then? Is to, in those times, stop. Check yourself. Pray. And Pray, maybe God would give you an answer as to what's kind of behind that. And we see this, what the pagan sailors, actually, they have the right response. They see this going on, this storm, and they understand there is a divine power at work. And so even though they do not know God, they rightfully see that and say, we're going to stop and we're going to pray and we're going to seek God in the storm. It says in verse 5, the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God, little g there, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it uh, for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Not just asleep, he was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. 
perhaps the God uh, will give a, a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, I want to try and set the scene for us Midwesterners, right? Not a whole lot of time is spent out on the open ocean. It's just we don't do a whole lot of that. Uh, but being, I was actually had the privilege of being in the Mediterranean Sea. Now, I was in a boat, but my boat was a little bit different than Jonah's, right? My boat had a pool on it, multiple restaurants. It, it was a ship, okay? Like, but still, like out there on this, this body of water, and, and it's just the sea. But I'm telling you, farm boy from Iowa, you get out on the open water, and you look, and you don't see land, for me, like, that is terrifying. You're like, if this thing goes, I can't swim that long and that far. And so just being on open water, just being transparent here, don't like it. Then it got dark, and you're out on open water. And this was still calm seas, like open water in the dark. Mm-mm. Like, the thought of being in that water and not seeing my feet and, like, what's going on, that just not, uh, whew. Okay, I'm getting anxious thinking about it. But the, the, I, don't under, I don't know if we can comprehend the helpless feeling that would, would persist being in a much smaller boat, no land in sight, out on open water, and have that thing threatening to break apart. I mean, the whole world is moving around you. This, even like now, if tornado, like you can go and stand on solid ground, the fact that everything would just be shifting and you'd be tossed about. And these were, these were competent sailors that were ready to sail 2,500 miles. And here they are just crying out. And you understand the level of desperation. They're taking their cargo and just hurling it into the sea. Whatever they were going to trade, whatever was so valuable that they were going to have it and take it 2,500 miles and trade it, it was of no value if they're dead. And so they are hurling it in the sea. And it's, I think it's called jettisoning the ship where it's lightening the load so the, the boat can ride a little bit higher on the waves. And so they're just trying to spare their lives at this point. And they, understandably, in desperation, they start crying out to their little G gods. And the, the sailors can discern that there's a divine power at work. And they're looking for strength outside of themselves. <laughs> and ironically, it's not the prophet of God who we're to look to in this moment. Rather, these pagan sailors are better models of repentant hearts. And they said in verse 7, you see the desperation here, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. What they're saying is, let's take some, some dice and let's throw them down and let's just cast lots. And this is recognition that God in his sovereignty can make those dice come up in a way that shows who's responsible. It aligns with Proverbs 16, The lot is cast in lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Like God in his sovereignty. And interestingly enough, they say, we got to figure out who's responsible for this. We're at a loss. Let's just throw some dice. Interesting love. Can you imagine Jonah be like, yeah, we should throw some dice, figure out who's responsible for this. Like he doesn't say anything. 
He just sits there and watches it, this unfold. It's like, okay, we're putting, we're putting uh, Todd against Matt. Who is, okay, now, like, I don't know how, like, if they have a bracket to figure this out or everybody just gets assigned a number, but, like, Jonah's, like, watching. He's like, okay, I'll be number six, you know, and, like, and there it is. And, the lot, and it comes up, you see, so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Okay. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? So many questions. What is your country and of what people? And he says to them, this is all we have recorded. He just says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, end quote. What are all these questions? I'm a Hebrew, part of God's people. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, and he made the sea and the dry land. Okay. And then these men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is it you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And I asked, when did he tell them? Because it wasn't in that short refrain we just read, right? So you can begin to speculate. Was it like when he was getting on the boat? Like, hey, where are you guys going? It's, we're going to go to Tarshish. Like, perfect, I'm in. <laughs> Which, I don't know if there's like small chat. It's like, oh, cool, you got family in Tarshish? You doing business? Like, no, I'm just running from God. You know, he, the one. <laughs> okay, like, you got your money? Yeah, bedroom's down and to the left. Like, just sleep it off, right? Like, that. They take him on, but he just volunteers like, I'm fleeing from the Lord. And you have to see the absurdity of this. Jonah rightly declares, he doesn't do a lot of things right, but he rightly gets God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, and yet you're trying to run from his presence in a boat, which is at sea. <laughs> okay, some per Like, the absurdity and I think disobedience to an all-powerful God is already foolish when we disobey him. But often our attempt to conceal sin from an all-seeing, all-knowing God is just as absurd. Does that make sense? It's already crazy that he would not obey God. But the fact that he thinks that, oh, I can get away from God who made everything, who knows everything, who sees everything, and I can just flee it's absurd, but I think we, we do that in regards to our sin, just this natural thing to like try and conceal it from a God who's numbered the hairs on our head. Like we try and conceal it thinking like, well, if I can, if I can delete this text or if I can purge my internet searches or maybe if I pay with cash instead of using credit card, like maybe, and you might be able to deceive people around you but God, come on. I feel it's kind of like my daughter. Like, and it's not quite a God to us relationship, but smarter than them, right? Like, got a few more years. They do this at the dinner table. This is one of the things now. One of our daughters. We've had to work through this. God love her. But in her little disobedience, she has something she doesn't want to eat. And parents, maybe you've had this, where kids will try and, like, sneak it away. But they are not discreet. Like, you know, like there's this flat napkin all of a sudden is like, whoo, like balled up and 
like carrots are jetting out of it, and they're like, I'm going to throw my stuff away now. And you're like, okay. And, uh, and then you go and you open the trash, and you're like, what's this? And, and uh, it, not discreet. And I imagine like our tr- attempt to conceal our sin, it, you know, it's just God knows. God sees, God hears. And Numbers 32, 23 says, your sin will find you out. We just studied Galatians. Like, you will reap what you sow. Like, God cannot be mocked in this. Like, your sin will find you out. And here's what I would encourage. If you're concealing sin this morning, the psalmist says something about it in Psalm 32. He says, when I kept silent in regards to sin, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the summer heat. Concealing this, keeping this in. It's the very thing that, I, man, I don't want to run down another illustration. But I'll, it's like a, one of our little kids like with a dirty diaper. It's like, oh, you can't smell it, right? It's terrible. Like, and they think, well, I'll just I'll conceal it. No, it, it, I think with our sin, what he's saying is, you're concealing that is just killing you. God already knows it. He's already got a response for your sin. He sent his son to die for us. There is forgiveness waiting, but yet we, we attempt to conceal it from an all-powerful, all-knowing God. And I would say, I would just encourage you before we take communion after the message, please confess your sins to one another. What God already knows articulate that back to him. Don't be like Jonah in this regard, trying to conceal, trying to run. And I would say just simply like this, don't run from him, run to him. That's the right response. I know it's counterintuitive, but because but it, it's God you wronged, and so you think, I'm going to run from him. But God is the only one that can reconcile and remedy that, and so run to him. I know it's counterintuitive and it's warring against every lie that Satan would be telling you now, but beg you, don't conceal sin. Confess it. And Jonah here flees, and he contrasts that with the attitude of the pagan soldiers, here, uh, or pagan sailors, sorry, in verse 11. Then they said to him, I love these guys' hearts, pagan, little G worshiping sailors. They said to him, what, what should we do? Because this is a man of God. What should we do that the, the sea may quiet down for us? Again, trusting that this God could quiet the sea. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah is essentially saying there is... Uh, hurricane force waves all this stuff what I want you to do is kill me just throw me in and then upon initial reading without the rest of the context it might look like Jonah has a noble moment here no we're gonna quickly see that that perhaps this is his most selfish move yet because he's called to go to Nineveh you can't go to Nineveh when you're dead and moreover hey if it's gonna calm down with you in the sea jump overboard dude But instead, you're putting your blood on the hands of innocent men who are just trying to fear God. But yet, 
You're not man enough to just jump overboard if that's what's coming down. You're saying, hey, innocent men, throw me overboard. Selfish all the way around, and that is the nature of Jonah, just selfish. And you see contrast that again with these men. Nevertheless, upon hearing that, the men rode hard. I imagine in vain, rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Pagan sailors trying to save Jonah's life. The very man that is responsible for their cargo being in the sea, the very man responsible for their perhaps death that would come upon them, and they're trying to save his life. What a joke. Jonah is just a joke. And these sailors... They're representing the very heart of God, and, and here they are, and they, they call out in verse 14, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done as it pleased to you. So they picked Jonah up and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows. These sailors have the right response. They absolutely have the right response in regards to the Lord. They call out. They repent. They make sacrifices. And Jonah, meanwhile, is just running the opposite direction. Guys, the irony, you understand how much of a joke this guy is at any point. What do you think God's response would have been had Jonah just hit his knees and said, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I will do your will. He can't even breath that as he's getting cast into the sea. He doesn't repent. Don't for a moment think that, that there's some repentant heart here in Jonah. He goes in hard, calloused hearted all the way head first into the sea. That's Jonah, stubborn hearted, quote-unquote, man of God. He'd rather die than repent. He'd rather die than go to these people. Contrast that, what's God's heart? Even this punk. God doesn't give up on him. Naturally, the story would be over, apart from the grace of God, who then, in verse 17, sends a great fish and swallows Jonah up. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. God does not treat us as our sin deserves. And, and Jonah is swallowed by this fish. It doesn't say whale. It just says this large fish, large enough to swallow a grown man. And I love it when we begin to study that. People are like, well, that's metaphorically, right? Like metaphorically, it's a fish that swallowed him up. Like what really happened? And it's funny because... It's like, wait, you believe God spoke the earth into creation? Like we just celebrated Easter. You believe God can raise the dead? God performed countless miracles. We're like, I don't know, a fish, you know, being inside. It's like, really? Like what's more unbelievable here? God, I think, can sustain a man for three days in the belly of a fish. I, how does God raise the dead? How did he help blind people see? But he's God, and he sustains Jonah for three days. Luke gets to teach on it next week, you know, about this prayer that finally comes out. But, but we have in our text today, three days. You want to talk about how stubborn this guy is? Three days he's in the belly of the fish before he cries out. 
If you come up and you hug me after service and you squeeze me tight for three seconds, I'm gonna be like, okay, that's enough, right? Like there's this threshold and that's too long. Can you imagine like being engulfed in something for three days, just like being squeezed tight? And for three days, that stubborn bugger doesn't say anything. And finally, after, after three days, cries out to God, getting an idea. And even his cry out to the Lord, we're going to study it, it lacks a little bit. What's our take home? This is an entertaining narrative. We're just one chapter into a four-chapter book. What's our take home? Well, we see smooth waters doesn't necessarily mean it's from God. doesn't mean it's not from God. But the response that we should have, not only in rough waters or smooth waters, is to pray, lean in. That's what submission looks like, is, is leaning on God, both in, in the good times and the bad, saying, man, Lord, how are we doing? Where are we at? Keeping in step. 1 Corinthians 5.17 says, pray continually. We need to lean in. Don't try and hide what God clearly sees and knows. Confess that. And this last one we're seeing here is if God's calling you to something, might I suggest you submit to him? Like true submission, not like once you throw me overboard and swallow me by a fish and spit me out, then I'll follow you. But perhaps on the front end, like submit. We had this phrase kind of in a connection group. Usually it's like you can be humble or get humbled. Like you can submit or be put into submission. I beg you like voluntarily, like voluntarily, like submit to the Lord, lean in humbly. That's the right heart. And you see that represented in these sailors. And here's the reality. This is who we're submitting to. This is the God who was calling him to go to Nineveh is now we know the full picture, the God who would send his son, Jesus Christ to die for us. A God who would provide mercy when we deserve the wrath of God. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross, taking the punishment that we deserve. And we're going to celebrate that with communion. And it is a celebration because it represents the body that was broken for us, the blood that was shed for us. Anthem Church, we can trust God's goodness to us as evidenced by Jesus Christ dying in raising us up to new life. Like God is good, there's proof in that. And so even in those calls that might seem a little bit hard, like, I don't know, foster care, really God? I don't wanna do it. And now your pastor's telling me that God might call me things I don't want to. Trust that God in his goodness who didn't spare his son for you, if he's calling you to it, he can see you through it. That what is that? And so I wanna give us the opportunity as the band, I'm going to invite them up, and we take communion. Here's how that looks here. Is you, we've got three communion stations set up. There's one back there, and then kind of two over here. And so there's more over here. And there's gluten-free. We don't want anybody to not be able to take communion because of that. That's over here. But here's what I would encourage you today. First things first, if you've been running and you've been concealing sin, confess that. Because what you're saying by taking communion is, oh, thank you, God, for forgiving me, for sending your son to die for me, his body broken, his blood shed. Oh, I'm so grateful for that. Proclaim that not just by dipping the bread into the cup, but by confessing and saying, I'm forgiven. I don't have to live in shame. And so if there's a leader, if there's somebody you got, just confess sin that might be concealed. 
And for those of us that are taking communion, perhaps on your way there as you just prayerfully, as the band plays, you'll have time. Perhaps this is the time now to like stop and listen to the Lord. I was thinking about this. It's like, God, are you calling any, me to anything? It's like, well, I don't know. Most of my days are run around like this. Like, Lord, I, if you have something toward me, tell me, you know. Perhaps it's time to just pull them out and actually listen. Say, Lord, is there, are you calling me to something? And don't wait for a storm in order to start calling out. Perhaps even on the smooth waters, call out and ask God, is there something you'd be calling me to? And so I'm going to allow you to just kind of bow your heads and, uh, and the band will start. And then again, in your time, just make your way back. There's multiple stations at multiple tables. And so, um, but once you're ready, again, your prayer right now is, Lord, would you reveal unconfessed sin that perhaps you would find somebody to confess that and we can have some leaders that take communion. You can talk to them. But as you ask Lord to search your heart for any injustice, perhaps that you would ask the Lord, is there anything in your goodness that you're calling me to? And even as you just take communion today, Here's the prayerful attitude that you would just take it and maybe even under your breath as you're taking the body that represents Jesus's, uh, taking the bread that represents the body, the blood, the, rep, uh, the cup that represents his blood. As you're taking that, I would invite you under your breath today to just say, as you dip that in the cup, Lord, I trust your goodness. I trust your goodness as you take communion today. And so just in that prayerful state, in that prayerful attitude at your own pace, make your way to the tables and take communion.